Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text for this evening, as I mentioned, is our Old Testament lesson from Genesis chapter 18, and perhaps especially where God says, I will spare the whole place. This is the word of the Lord for us today. You may be seated. So I don't know if, if any of you are like me, but I am a terrible negotiator. <laughs> a friend of mine recently has uh, got me into to cycling, and he'd been on me for a, a couple of months at least uh, to buy a, a nice new road bike, or at least new to me road bike, to replace the $150 Target bike I had bought a decade ago. Every day he'd send me a, a few possibilities, you know, a few promising options on the Facebook marketplace. Well, finally I gave in and decided to go for it, and so we went to check out a bike that he said was just a fantastic deal. So I took it for a test ride and uh, decided to, to take it. So as I pedaled back up the driveway of the cellar, I said, wow, that felt great. Well, I got the bike for the price that I offered, which was pretty impressive, but it was pointed out to me on the ride home that, wow, that felt great. It's not the best kind of thing to say when you're trying to negotiate someone down. <laughs> it worked that time. Well, our text for tonight from Genesis 18 is often characterized as a negotiation. In some ways, it certainly seems that way, right? Abraham seems to be haggling with God. But at the same time, we should be careful, uh, both with what we understand to be happening in this text, and maybe what we're supposed to do with it as a result. First of all, there's the question of whether or not what Abraham is doing here is worthy of imitation. Is Abraham setting an example for us? Is negotiating with God the right way to go about things? Or is this approach not necessarily something that, that we can just copy and paste into our own lives? Second, if this is an example that we're supposed to follow, Abraham doesn't seem to be very successful. After all of Abraham's bartering and convincing God to, to lower the price of his mercy, God still doesn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham stops at 10, and apparently that was still too many. Finally, I may be a bad negotiator, but perhaps I'm in good company because God also seems like a pretty bad negotiator based on this encounter. He concedes to every single request Abraham makes and never even puts forth a counteroffer. So yes, perhaps we could call it a negotiation, but who wins? Neither side, really. And what exactly is Abraham negotiating here anyway? A careful reading shows that he's not really negotiating for mercy on behalf of those who deserve God's wrath. He is negotiating for the righteous to be spared the punishment God is planning to rain down on the wicked. He does not, interestingly, take issue with the punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah per se, because he knows they kind of deserve it. I have a very distinct memory of a Bible study I went to in high school where we looked at Genesis 19, the very next chapter, which narrates the events that happen right after our text. How the two angels go to Sodom, are invited to stay with Abraham's relative, Lot, 
and how the men of the city come to Lot's house and call out to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now they mean that quite literally in the biblical sense. And the NIV translation makes the the perversity of their demands even more clear and explicit. So Abraham is not really asking for undeserved mercy. He is asking for fairness. He's not asking that the evil be spared. He simply doesn't want any righteous ones living in the cities to be cut down with the unrighteous. He believes there is greater injustice in destroying even 50 righteous people than in sparing a great multitude of the wicked. Abraham is appealing to God's justice. Ultimately, he is arguing that God should not inflict collateral damage. For the last month or so on my my long bike rides, I've been listening to a podcast called Hardcore History. And right now, I'm in the middle of a a five-episode, 20-hour series on World War I. Now, I knew going into this series that World War I was one of the most horrific events in all of human history, particularly for, for all those poor men in the trenches. I knew that almost an entire generation of young men in Europe was lost to the scourge of war. What I did not know was that the death toll among civilians was nearly as high. An estimated 9 to 11 million soldiers were killed, which is just a staggering number. But even more shocking, at least to me, is that the war claimed the lives of about 8 million civilians. Now, most of this devastating toll was due to war-related famine and disease, but a large part of it was caused because civilians were at times actually targeted. World War I served as as a major turning point in how the so-called home front was viewed and treated by opposing armies. More than ever before, civilians were leading the war effort with the production of weapons and ammunition and supplies, and so opposing powers began to feel justified in attacking them directly. When the mother of one German soldier told her son in a letter that that she objected to such strategies, he responded, in modern warfare, there is no such thing as a non-combatant. Still, targeting civilians was generally regarded as a no-no, and attacks on civilians by an enemy power were used to great effect in wartime propaganda, painting the opposition as, as baby killers or savages. And even though World War I's tactics led to World War II's London air raids and and Dresden firebombings, and though we still to this day debate things like drone strikes that, that kill terrorists but sometimes take innocent lives along with them, most everyone would agree that collateral damage is regrettable at best, unjust, or even evil at worst. This is where Abraham is with all of this. And so he asks God, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It's not fair that God would inflict collateral damage, that he would punish the good along with the bad, the innocent along with the evil. Abraham has a big problem with this. To be honest, I think we do too. We might not be surprised when our nation's enemies inflict unjust violence. We might even expect it. But when God seems to be doing the same thing, it's hard to swallow. 
It's one thing for him to condemn those who defiantly reject him, but what about those remote tribes who have never heard the name of Jesus? Or why would he allow my son to be killed in a car accident? It was the other driver who ran the red light. Why did it have to be my mom who was diagnosed with cancer? Why would God force me to contend with this chronic pain at such an early age when all my life I have loved and served him? It's not fair. It's unjust. Far be it from God to allow such things. With Abraham, we might find ourselves asking with a fair measure of indignance, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The problem is, it is just. Abraham gets God to spare the cities if but ten righteous people can be found in them. But the Psalms say more than once, Paul repeats it in Romans, that none is righteous. No, not one. Not even you. Not even me. In the war being waged against God since the fall of his creation, there is no such thing as a non-combatant. We are not collateral damage. We are those fully deserving of God's wrath. We were all in open rebellion against God, belligerent toward him, his sworn enemies, as Paul also says. When it came to any injustice we feel God may have inflicted on us, we could not claim to be innocent victims. There are no blameless bystanders in this conflict, no neutral nations. And so in the prayer Jesus himself taught us, we rightly pray and forgive us our sins. God didn't choose to spare Sodom and Gomorrah. He rained down upon them fire and brimstone. He utterly destroyed them and the wickedness of their sin. But he did save Lot, dragging him safely out of the condemned cities. Though Lot was certainly not blameless, as his treatment of Abraham before this event and the, the circumstances with his daughters after had amply demonstrate, even though Lot was not righteous, God had mercy on him. And though we are certainly not blameless ourselves, God has had mercy on us. And ironically, he's done that by inflicting collateral damage. If collateral damage is defined as damage caused to an undeserving, innocent party, then we could very well say that in the purest sense, it has only happened once in human history. For there has only ever been one undeserving, innocent party. And he knew just what he was getting himself into. Our text told us that God chose to, to come down to see Sodom and Gomorrah's sin. In Jesus Christ, God chose to come down to save us from ours. The punishment for our sin, which we fully and completely deserved, was meted out on Jesus. But on the cross, God didn't sweep away the righteous ones with the wicked. He swept away the righteous one instead of the wicked. He swept away the righteous one and spared the wicked. He swept away the righteous one for the sake of the wicked. At the cross, the very injustice Abraham so feared comes to pass for the very first time. For the very first time, a completely innocent human being is put to death. 
Jesus becomes the collateral damage that ends up saving the whole world. Jesus, the only true non-combatant in the fight between us and God, willingly chose to serve as the innocent victim whose death would bring about our life. In this crazy turn of events, we, the wicked, are declared righteous. We were his enemies. He made us his friends. We were belligerent. He made us blameless. God had said to Abraham, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. In Christ, God found one righteous in the entire world, and he says to us, I will spare the whole place for his sake. In light of this staggering, shocking collateral damage, any objection to God's sense of justice falls silent. Perhaps God does seem unfair to us at times, but if so, thank God that he is. For in Christ, God's justice has been satisfied and his mercy has been poured out on us. So cling to the one who willingly took God's wrath on himself in your place. And as Paul warned in our epistle lesson, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit that is not according to Christ. This philosophy and empty deceit would be the idea that anything but Christ can save you, that you somehow deserve to be spared by your own merit, that God can be coerced or reasoned with or negotiated down to a more palatable arrangement. No, Paul says, it is all about Christ. You were buried with Jesus and then raised with him through faith. You were dead in your sins like Sodom, unrighteous like Gomorrah. Your sins were grave, and God made you alive together with Christ, forgiving you all your trespasses. The record of debt that stood against you is canceled, nailed to the cross. So yes, I may be a bad negotiator. I certainly am a sinner deserving of God's wrath. But Jesus has taken my place, and yours also. For his sake, God has spared the whole place and each one of us. You are declared righteous in him. May his mercy and his justice grant you peace and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. May the peace of God, which passes our understanding, guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.